This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is World Changing Ideas, and I'm Amelia Hempel. This season, we'll be hearing from changemakers and innovators around the world, all working to create a better future. So if you're on the hunt for some solutions to the world's problems, then you've come to the right place. Okay, let's go. Farming is one of our most ancient practices. We can't support life on this planet without the food that we grow from the soil. But the soil itself is a living organism too, and a crucial resource that desperately needs our global attention. December 5th every year is actually the UN's World Soil Awareness Day. So let's dig into this. Only about 7.5% of the Earth's surface provides the soil that we rely on for agriculture, and it's actually remarkably fragile. More than half of our soil worldwide is now classified as degraded. Modern farming's extensive use of pesticides and herbicides has wiped out over 75% of insect species in the last three decades, which means that farmers now need to use even more fertilizer and stronger chemicals. Clearly, we've got some pretty big problems brewing here. The issue of using like ammonium nitrate, which is a nitrogen fertilizer, that is uh, a form of fertilizer that's synthetic and oxidizes into the atmosphere and is 300 times more potent than carbon. And no one ever really talks about that. Beyond the fact that the food grown in that way is typically void of flavor and nutrient density, it's an extractive method that has a short lifespan. And in spite of what you may hear or read, the farming industry and that industry is $400 billion a year in debt every year. This is John Chester, a very different kind of commercial farmer with an amazing solution story. Back in 2011, he and his wife Molly were living in Los Angeles in California. He was a documentary filmmaker, she was working as a chef, and their rescue dog Todd had just got them evicted from their Santa Monica apartment because of his constant and unstoppable barking. John and Molly decided it was time for a new start. The story of Apricot Lane Farms, well, it started kind of as a means to the end of two things, of getting to produce and cook with the type of food that we were really looking to experience in the kitchen. And then also our dog was barking like crazy and we knew that moving to a farm could solve it. <laughs> Ten years on, and the Chesters have transformed Apricot Lane Farms into a world-famous case study of soil regeneration and biodynamic farming. They've also built a thriving business, while recording their journey and the challenges along the way in an award-winning documentary called The Biggest Little Farm. If you haven't seen it, I'll try not to give away any spoilers, but you should definitely check it out. Today, the farm grows up to 170 different varieties of crop and supports all kinds of animals, wildlife and insects. But after the Chesters had raised money from friends and investors to buy the farm back in 2011, they realised that they were facing some pretty serious problems. We thought we had picked out a really great farm and then over the period of a few months learned that we had soil that was completely depleted of microbial diversity and life. A combination of the hot California sun and years of industrial farming and pesticide use 
had left the soil totally dried out and stripped of nutrients. It was a bit of a pavement. And they had 234 acres of land to deal with. Like many of the most successful ideas, this was going to involve some wisdom from the past. The Chesters set about learning traditional farming techniques, consulting indigenous cultures, sourcing scientists, and working with nature's own resources. We were really interested in this idea of farming in a way that was more regenerative in nature and less extractive. That meant using no artificial pesticides or fertilizers, but instead looking at the farm's individual ecosystems, taking what's known as a biodynamic approach. So we're using all these little elements that already exist within the natural world, and we're essentially mimicking it, and it's called biomimicry. So we're mimicking these processes and patterns in nature to enhance soil systems so we don't have to wait 5,000 years for the soil of this farm to repair itself. With the help of soil guru and expert Alan York, John and Molly began to make some progress with their cement-like soil. There is this incredibly potent level of resiliency that you find erupt within these landscapes. It wants to be alive. It wants to actually solve the problems. You just have to know how to guide it and how to like open up those opportunities for that type of collaboration. And collaboration meant using every natural resource available to them, from bacteria and microbes to birds, insects, pollinators, predators, farm animals, and a lot of composting to build back natural resiliency. Because it's such a complex system, you're never going to find the one person that knows all the answers. But you'll find someone that'll give you a piece of the puzzle, and that really is the lens that you use to view the problem that you're trying to solve. So when we began farming, I had little to no knowledge of actual farming, but I did have an understanding of the gut and how restoring the gut can affect human health. They applied those principles of the gut microbiome to understanding the soil and specifically strengthening the Earth's digestive system, which is that 10 to 12 inches of fragile topsoil. People just go, oh, soil, soil. I keep hearing how important soil is, you know. But let's look at it like this. It is the actual only alchemizer of life back into death that we know. And so people talk about the um, circle of life. In actuality, it's far more complex, of course, than a circle. But the best way to sort of describe it is an eight. If the top loop of the figure eight is life and growth, and the bottom loop is death and decomposition, the soil is the crossover in the middle, which connects everything, like an infinity loop. But it only works that way if you have all the diversity of components, players, microorganisms, etc., that are in there to break and churn down things that are in decaying form and release all the nutrients to become more plant available to grow all life that's you know, forthcoming from the soil system. So for us, compost teas, compost, all of those methods of helping to break down decaying plant and animal matter is advancing that process to make it more nutrient available to plants faster. And healthy soil leads to all kinds of other benefits. Not only are you growing super great tasting food with deep you know, nutrient value, but these practices sequester carbon, massive amounts of carbon from the atmosphere, methane, and water, among other things. I wanted to find out more about these biodynamic regenerative practices and see the farm for myself. It took about an hour and a half driving from LA. The biodiversity hits you from the moment you arrive. Compared to the dry and arid looking surrounding landscape, 
The farm itself is just teeming with life. Trees, cover crops, flowers, fruit and butterflies everywhere. I wish I could properly describe what the air smells like here because it's just this incredible mix of sort of eucalyptus and citrus fruits and wildflowers and dust all mixed together. It's amazing. The pigs, cows, sheep and chickens aren't confined to pens or barns but are rotated around the pastures, orchards and meadows. Every animal's got a job to do and is part of a finely balanced system. Take the lemon orchards, for example. When I arrived, sheep were grazing the cover crop, which is grown in the orchard. It helps to lock in the groundwater, but it also makes a great home for problematic snails. So the snails were eating the leaves of the lemon trees, and then we released probably 30 ducks, and in one season they ate probably 96,000 snails. And then what did they do with the snails? They turned it into this nitrogen-rich duck manure that went back into the soil that fed the lemon trees. Next was the problem with gophers gnawing at the roots of the fruit trees. But instead of trapping or poisoning them, they brought in a natural predator, barn owls. Between the barn owls and the other predators on the farm, they ate about 35,000 gophers in one year. But you have to bring them back to your land by creating habitat that they're going to want to sort of winter over and be here for and raise their young here. The barn owls also scare away the smaller birds that try to eat the fruit crop. But animals aren't just used as predators, they're protectors too. Large mountain guardian dogs are on patrol to protect the sheep and chickens from coyotes, while pigs and cows churn the soil and stop certain weeds from putting down roots. It all sounds pretty idyllic, but for John and Molly, it hasn't been easy. Finding the balance and creating systems that worked took years of experimentation, failures and challenges. You don't have to grow 260 different things and have all the craziness that we have. It made for a great film eventually. It almost killed us. But it's also not necessary. The lens that is transferable to any place on the planet is just focusing every decision through this idea that how is this going to enhance the biodiversity of soil and the biodiversity of life above the soil system plant diversity, pollinator diversity, habitat for animals, etc., because they're the regulators of the farm. This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. My next stop was meeting with the farm's fertility coordinator, Zach Heyman, who's in charge of some of the farm's most important workers. So let's check out the worms. Rebuilding the microbiology of the soil requires a lot of worms and a lot of worm poop. As they digest and break down organic matter, they add nitrogen, phosphorus, and supercharge the soil with beneficial bacteria. Inside the barn is a 40-foot-long vermicompost bin filled with hundreds of thousands of them guzzling away on food waste. All the worms are on top here, and as the material kind of flows its way from the top to the bottom, all the finished compost, or the vermicast, which is worm poop, is what sinks to the bottom here, and that's the kind of the finished product, the black gold that we're looking for. Apricot Lane Farms has been running an 11-year-long trial, collecting data to track the detailed bacterial changes in the soil and learn more about the optimum conditions for regeneration. 
The content being churned out by the worm farm looks pretty gold standard to me. That's the first thing that we always like to point out to people when they come in is this is a giant bin of food waste. Like, where are the flies? Where are the maggots? Where's the bad smell? Yeah, it smells really nice, right. just like soil. We're mimicking the way that in nature, all nutrients, all waste gets cycled through. Heyman explains that worms aren't just digesting for themselves, but also for the wider community. And that's why you can't just have one worm breaking things down. We have to have a quarter of a million worms. And in their, their gut, this microbial community, it's unlike anything else that we've seen. Like there are amino acids and microbes that are only found in the earthworm gut. And after all of that, you collect the nutritious finished product. So we harvest about 12 tons a year or so, about 1,000 pounds every two weeks. So, but because of how low, you know, how small of a rate that is, it's not really enough to actually like take this and put it out onto our orchards and our pastures. But there's a solution to that too, making huge vats of compost tea. In the tea, the microbes in here can go up by about 500 times what their population is in here in an aquatic environment. So brewing tea is like exactly what it sounds like. We walked over to these huge bubbling containers full of brown liquid. They actually didn't smell that bad either. So this is compost tea, compost tea. brewers. Yeah, compost tea brewers. Whoa, so bubbly. It's really <laughs> not warm at all. It's all ambient temperature. <laughs> Because we want to have the An most ambient diversity. poop jacuzzi. Right. The tea is brewed for 24 to 48 hours. We can then take that, either soak our pastures or spray it on our fruit trees. And that's sort of the main delivery method for this across the farm. Because now we can take this small amount, this concentrated material, and actually spread it all across the land. And the good thing about the poop jacuzzi is that you can add all kinds of extra biodynamic ingredients too. We'll mix the tea with like seaweed extracts, fish emulsions, things to feed the biology in the soil. Then the animals are brought in on a strict rotation schedule for even more soil rehab. We want them to trample a third of the grass, we want them to leave a third of the grass, and we want them to eat a third of the grass. And that's really to ensure that, you know, leaving it is just letting it go to seed and continuing to grow. Cows have these enzymes in their saliva that actually stimulates grass growth, so it's almost like getting a haircut, and then that's causing your hair to grow more. The rotational grazing helps to keep the animals healthy too. They get shade from the trees and forage in the cover crop, which is greenery that doesn't get harvested, it's just there to protect the soil. So as we move the sheep through our lemon orchards or our citrus orchards, they'll eat the grass and then they also go for the lemon leaves. And then we found that in the lemon leaves also is this natural deworming enzyme or some compound in there that helps them sort of reduce the worm load that builds up in their guts, which is really valuable. That's less intervention that we have to do. Keeping the animal herd small helps maintain balance in all the different ecosystems around the farm. And that leads to a richer seasonal crop output. Citrus season is picking up, so all of our mandarins and oranges and grapefruit, that's going to start coming on in the next couple months. Or our orchards putting out some apples, our Mediterranean fruit season, so figs, pomegranates, persimmons. We have pineapple guava feijoas, which are really awesome, sort of tropical uh, exotic fruit. While the farm organizes everything according to the seasons, they're always tweaking the process too. If you're a sustainable farm, you're implying that like we've reached sustainability and now we can keep doing what we're doing, but regenerative is a constant thing. You are constantly regenerating. Building up nature's inherent defense mechanisms has also served the farm well during extreme weather events. The diversity of plants has helped to hold groundwater in the soil and the trees provide shade from the harsh sun. When the area was hit by flash floods a few years ago, neighbouring farms saw all of their crops destroyed. 
but Apricot Lane came out okay. So this all sounds amazing when it comes to regenerating the soil and protecting the environment, but is this a world-changing idea that the commercial farming industry could ever fully get on board with? And can regenerative farming make a long-term profit for business owners? I went and sat down in the farm's kitchen garden with John and Molly to find out. Like I'm looking behind your head and there's so many different butterflies flying around. I'm just like, I wish you could record that sound. It wasn't here 10 years ago. But will it all still be there in 10 years time? As John points out, the economics of farming needs some new solutions as well. The average farmer makes 15 cents on every dollar you spend in a grocery store. But for us to farm in the way that we're doing it, we need that direct relationship. We need to make 85 cents, roughly speaking. So I, I think that what is most important is looking deep within yourself and saying, what do you want to grow? Because it's just like making a film. A film doesn't want to be made and a farm doesn't want to be farmed. It's all chaos. What do you really feel passionate about? What do you love to work with? And then where do you think you can sell that? And are you in a place that that actually could move to the consumer level with ease without someone taking so much out of your pocket? Huge financial investments in buying the farmland isn't always necessary either, John says. Finding the right partnership with the people that believe in you. And sometimes a bank isn't the one that's going to believe in the long-term sort of return uh, of, say, a regenerative farm that has to restore something incredibly depleted. But a landowner would. Leasing out land to regenerative farmers is now becoming an increasingly popular option for U.S. landowners, while government grants from the state of California to promote soil regeneration have seen record numbers of applications this year. And this other notion that comes along is that you can't scale this, but 70% of the world's food has grown on farms that are 25 acres or less. So really, for us, it was the opportunity to actually do something and be a part of a more visionary community of food growers that see how it affects not only the environment, but human health as well. The visionary community's been quick to find its way to Apricot Lane Farms. They run apprenticeships of four to six months at a time, where trainees can go deep into all the different aspects of the farm. So what's the takeaway here for all of us who live in cities? If you're not interested in ever becoming a regenerative farmer, John says there are still plenty of things we can all do to support the soil. And there's so many composting programs now, and that goes back into the soil uh, on farms to help essentially grow what uh, will feed you know, people for tomorrow. And one day in the future, we're going to realize that we've thrown all these finite nutrients into these dumps, and we're going to have to come out with mining methods to dig <laughs> these things out. And I would rather have them separated from keyboards and rolls of toilet paper now rather than digging it out later. Getting the message out about soil regeneration and biodynamic farming is a huge part of the Chester's mission. As well as the Biggest Little Farm documentary, John's now making a new TV series with National Geographic, and Molly has just released an Apricot Lane Farms cookbook. They also run educational tours of the farm every weekend and say they're feeling particularly hopeful about the next generation of farming enthusiasts. If a third grader comes to this farm, they will ask me questions that someone in their 40s or 50s wouldn't even understand. And I'll look at that kid and I'll be like, oh my gosh, I even knew how to ask that question at that age. The decisions that I would have been making as an adult growing up would have been way different when it comes to how buying food and affecting the climate. The more you try to scare people with the truths of uh, climate change and all that we're facing, the increase in degenerative diseases, et cetera, 
the more polarizing life becomes because everyone's looking to blame or shame someone. And we're trying to fight this battle by using fear, and it's not going to work. It has to be something that we help people to fall in love with it because that's going to invite innovation and curiosity. And that's what the planet needs from us right now, not our fear. Like anything that involves nature, every solution usually just unearths another problem. And the Chesters have been through their fair share of moral and ethical dilemmas on Apricot Lane farms. In the documentary, John struggles with shooting a coyote that just killed 500 of his chickens, and the team grapples with their decision to sell some of their farm animals to be slaughtered for meat products. There's no such thing as right and wrong. There's only consequences. And you have to decide which consequence you can live with. And oftentimes, you have to make the decision and live through to the consequence to decide if you made a decision that's right for you. So how do they see the biodynamic farming and food production model working in the future? It's a patchwork quilt. That's how this works. That's actually what makes it resilient. You don't want to look at this idea of fixing this problem on one giant 50,000-acre farm. You want lots of little farms doing this because that's how the immune system of our body works. It's decentralized, and it creates more resiliency when it's decentralized. That's it for our show today. I'm Amelia Hempel. We want to hear about the world-changing ideas going on where you are. If you want to see photos of just how beautiful Apricot Lane Farms is, check out our Fast Company TikTok and Instagram. And please leave us all your comments, reviews and questions on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. See you next Wednesday. Our show is produced by Avery Miles, mixing and sound design by Nicholas Torres. Joshua Christensen is our supervising producer, editorial oversight from deputy editor Kate Davis, and senior VP of entertainment Scott Mebus. 